a group of friends head out to a cabin in the woods to celebrate the winter holidays, but when they return, they are forever changed. After weeks of abuse from her new husband, a woman decides to serve up a special recipe for justice. A woman indebted to a friend finally settles up. Hello everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Campfire Stories. I'm your host, Kenya Denise, and I'm going to tell you all a few good old-fashioned campfire stories. In this show, the stories will center around themes of horror, suspense, true crime, and even the supernatural. So campers under the age of 13 are not encouraged to listen. At the end of each episode, I'm going to ask you which of the stories are true and which are false. In recognition of the holiday, I have chosen three Thanksgiving-inspired stories to tell you. I'm so excited. Okay, so let's all gather around and let's hear our first story, Friendsgiving Massacre. It was that time of year again. Time for the group to get ready to head up to New Hampshire for their annual Friendsgiving weekend. Fortunately, they were able to book the same cabin as they had the past two years before. It was secluded, but still close enough to a few neighbors and a general store if they needed to head out for supplies. There was a community clubhouse with a game and a pool room. It was just an ideal location for a bunch of 20-somethings. Everyone was coming from out of a different state Elle and Andrew were flying in from New York. Kendra, Phil, Connie, and Nadine were driving from Massachusetts. Alexis and Ashton from Texas, and Derek was coming from North Carolina. Check-in was a short few hours away, so everyone was already en route that Friday afternoon when Alexis, who organized the event, got a call from the host that prompted her to pull over to the side of the road instantly and message the Wolfpack group chat. Okay, so... Hangover had just come out, so every group was called the Wolf Pack. I don't know. It turns out that the host had to cancel last minute as there had been some flooding at the cabin and they wouldn't be able to accommodate the group. This would have been devastating, but the host assured Alexis that they had already secured a stay at a different cabin for them. It actually had enough bedrooms for each couple to have their own room, instead of the shared arrangement that they were planning to have. It would require everyone to travel an additional two hours than they anticipated, but it was too late to turn back now. One by one, members of the wolf pack pulled into the driveway of the cabin. It was positioned on the base of a hill, and you actually had to walk up several landings to get to the front of the house. Everyone got out of their vehicles and embraced each other, but someone was missing. Derek hadn't arrived yet. This would be a little more alarming if it weren't Derek. He was always the last to show, so no one thought much of it and everyone continued up to the house. Kendra looked down at her phone, noticing that she no longer had service, and asked if anyone else had. No one did, 
Connie, optimistic as always, assured everyone that places like this would have a landline and there probably were no towers around. So no big deal. Everyone settled into their rooms while Phil, Ashton, and Andrew began to get the party started with some cocktails. It was getting late and there was still no sign of Derek. So Connie decided to use the landline and give him a call. He said he's been trying to call you bitches for the past hour, she said. He's actually close and can see the house. Connie hung up and the party continued. 20 minutes later, the doorbell rang. Elle offered to go get the door, expecting it to be Derek. She was surprised to see a middle-aged woman when she opened it. The woman introduced herself as Mary. She said she was the host and she and her husband lived not too far from the property. So she came by to say hello. She even brought some wine. The group welcomed the woman in, but she said she couldn't stay long and really just wanted to meet her guests and bring them the wine. Recalling that it's been almost 40 minutes since they had last heard from Derek and he still wasn't there, Kendra asked the woman had she seen his car. There's only one way in and out of this place. I would have seen it, but no, I haven't, she said. Connie thought that was odd because he said he could see them. So she tried to call him from the landline again. This time, there was no dial tone. She repeatedly clicked the switch hook. That's the button thing under the handset. But she couldn't get a dial tone. Way up here and in weather like this, even those ancient things aren't reliable, Mary said. I'm sure your friend just got lost and will be here soon. Why don't you give me his number and I can try to call him when I get back to my house? Mary took down the number and left. The party continued for some time until suddenly the power went out. Ashton wasn't about to let that stop him from enjoying his night, so he grabbed a bottle of wine Mary gifted them from the counter and faced the rest of it. He could feel something hit his tongue. What did you drop the cork in the bottle? He asked Alexis. No, she says, and brings over a flashlight to see what he was talking about. When she had shown the light onto the bottle, they could make out what looked like a finger with a ring on it. Ashton wrenched, and Alexis screamed, causing Kendra and Phil to rush over. It wasn't just any ring. It was their class ring, and it was Derek's finger. Everyone began freaking out. Nadine, who was the flight-or-flight flight kind of girl, immediately runs in search of an exit. However, it's pitch black in the house, and she slips on a solo cup, sending her body in a different direction than her feet. She slams into the table and breaks her leg completely completely exposing the bone. Absolute panic ensues in the house that is only silenced by a creaking followed by the slam of a door. Whispers fill the room about what to do next. It had to be that crazy bitch Mary that did this to Derek. She said it herself. There's only one way in or out and she would have seen him. Plus the finger was in the wine bottle she gave them. Everyone begins scouring the house in search of a weapon when they hear a knock on the door. It's Mary, and she's back with her husband, Tom. They tell them that they found a car on the other side of the hill, and they believe it to be their missing friend. Kendra looks down and notices Tom's boots are covered in red spots and nudges Phil to see what she sees. Tom and Mary offer to go check the fuses, and the group decides that they need to get them before whatever happened to Derek happens to them. As soon as Tom rounds the corner, 
the men jump him and bludgeon him with a cast iron skillet. Blood pours from Tom's head. He dies almost instantly. Mary is taken by the throat with the phone cord, strangled to unconsciousness, and tied to a chair. A sound is then heard from upstairs, and they realize they're not alone. Someone else is in the house. The power is restored, and Derek appears at the top of the stairs. Gotcha, bitches. Immediately horrified by the dead man in the foyer. What the fuck, guys, he shouts. What the fuck, guys? What the fuck, you? We thought they killed you, dude. Andrew shouts back. Derek exclaimed that he just wanted to have a little fun with them. The finger in the bottle was actually a marshmallow peanut, and he had been there hiding long before they even got there. At this point, Mary starts to wake up and is hysterical. Agreeing that they can't let her go, Phil goes out to the shed and returns yielding an axe. Ellen and Andrew go into the kitchen to grab the butcher's block, handing each person a knife. So that they are forever bound by blood, they each take turns stabbing Mary through the chest and watch as she struggles to take her last breath. If one is going down for this, they would all go down for this. The next morning, the group cleaned the home spotless. They each took some body parts back to their cars, said their goodbyes, and dumped them in various states as they traveled back home. On Monday afternoon, the Wolfpack group chat received a screenshot of a message sent to Alexis that morning. The message read, Dear Alexis and friends, we were sorry you were unable to make it to the cabin this year. We wish you a safe and happy holiday, and we look forward to hosting you next year. With love, Mary and Tom. Cringy, huh? I mean, if Mary and Tom sent that email, then who the hell did those guys kill? Are we ready for our next story? I give you waste not, want not. Life in Cairo was rough for Sarah, to say the least. Like so many other Egyptian girls, her family had subjected her to female genital mutilation or the female circumcision, if you will. However, unlike a male circumcision, the process is done to control the woman's sexual behavior, making sex uncomfortable and even unbearable at times. Needless to say, she was excited when she immigrated to America at the age of 18. America is the land of the free, a place where dreams come true. And in the beginning, it was for Sara too. She was able to use her exotic beauty to her advantage and picked up a few modeling gigs here and there. She was even able to land a job as a nanny for some time. But life in America was becoming more and more difficult without money. So she figured it was time to use her beauty to find someone who would take care of her. Yes, she was searching for a sugar daddy. She tried to make it work with several older wealthy men, but nothing ever really came of any of those relationships until she met Paul. The next three weeks would be the best three weeks of Zara's life. Paul swept Zara off her feet. And then in less than a month's time, Paul proposed to her. 
she said yes. Unfortunately, that joy would end almost immediately. It wasn't long after the two married that he began beating and raping her. He would tell her things like, I paid for you. I'm getting what I paid for. He would even loan her out to other men. Sara could no longer take any of this abuse, and on Thanksgiving Day, she decided to lure her husband to bed with the promise of sex. She dressed in her most provocative of lingerie, and she set the stereo to some seductive music. Paul was entranced, so when she asked him to lie on the bed so that she could tie him up, he was more than eager to succumb. Once he was blindfolded and secured to the bedposts, Zara slipped a pair of scissors into the fabric of her garter belt. She then straddled Paul, leaned in close, and whispered the last words he would ever hear. This is what you paid for. Paul smirked, oblivious to the rage behind those words. It was then that Zara reached for the lamp on the nightstand and hit him in the head repeatedly. She then unsheathed the scissors from her garter and drove them through his chest. However, as hard as she tried, he just wouldn't die. Covered in blood, Zara went to the linen closet and grabbed the clothing iron and beat him with it over and over again. Now that he was finally gone, Zara had to figure out what she would do with his body, but not before she was properly dressed, of course. In true model fashion, Zara put on a red hat, red pumps, and red lipstick, and began dismembering her deceased husband. She cut off his head, cooked it, and put it in the freezer. She removed his hands and fried them in oil. She cut off his penis and removed the skin from his legs and torso. With Paul laying about the apartment in pieces, Zara walked over to one of the kitchen drawers and pulled out some aluminum foil. Along with some loose newspaper, she sat on the floor and began wrapping up the pieces of Paul's body that didn't fit down the garbage disposal and placing them into garbage bags. Well, carving up a man more than twice her size worked up quite the appetite. So amidst the carnage, Zara decided to treat herself to a romantic, home-cooked dinner for one. The main course, barbecued ribs, tender, sweet, and delicious. After her meal, she loaded the leftovers, you know, what was left of Paul, into the trunk of her car and proceeded to drive door to door to each of her neighbors, asking for help with the rest of him. And each time she was turned away. I mean, Come on, Zara. Needless to say, Zara was arrested shortly after. For the detectives, this was an open and shut case. Easy peasy, right? All the pieces were there. You've got a victim, the murderer, motive, and a body. Or were they? See, there was something that was bothering officers. They couldn't find all of Paul. And when they asked Zara, where the rest of him was, she simply muttered. He was tender, sweet, and delicious. I can't imagine that human anything tastes good.
but maybe a little barbecue sauce goes a long way. I joke, I joke. Okay, I have one more story for you guys. It's called The House Guest. It had been an emotionally draining six months as Misty waited for the finalization of the divorce from her wife, but it was now here and she could finally start the healing process. Though she had spent 13 years with Steph, she had mourned the end of their relationship three years earlier, so she really was ready to move on. Not necessarily to a new relationship, but to whatever the new chapter would be in her life. She didn't have any children with Steph, however, she was made to be domesticated. She stayed at home because Steph wanted to take care of her. At least, that is what she told herself in the beginning. But in hindsight, Misty understood that Steph just wanted to control her. So when they married, Misty put aside her career and became Steph's wife. Funny thing is that for someone that wanted to make sure that Misty was taken care of, Steph had made it impossible for Misty to ever benefit from her wealth after they separated. She made sure of that in the prenup they got before they were married. So Misty was left with nothing but the hope she had come into the relationship with. Fortunately for Misty, one of her old college friends, Rose, was empathetic to her situation and welcomed her to move across the country and stay with she and her husband, John, until she could get back on her feet. Misty was more than grateful and boarded a train from Boston to Los Angeles. Over the following year with Rose, Misty was able to build herself back up, so much that she was able to find a job back on the East Coast and could go home. Rose, ever so generous, had offered to sublet the apartment they had in Boston to her for rent that was well below market. I sure wish I could pay less than market rent. It's expensive living in Massachusetts, so I feel you. Rose wanted things to be perfect for Misty when she returned to Boston. So she offered to have the apartment completely renovated for her before she got there. Misty told her that that would be unnecessary as she felt that she had done more than enough for her already. However, once she had her mind set to something, there was no changing it. See, as kind as Rose was, she was not always an easy person to accommodate. She had a very strong personality and was very particular about every little detail of every little thing, which made her the top surgeon in her field, but being her friend was tough. Earlier that year, Misty was charged with preparing invitations for Thanksgiving. She went and bought self-sealed envelopes. However, Rose insisted that it was more personal to lick and seal every single one. In fact, she took over and ended up doing them all herself. That's just the type of person she was. It was about a month before Misty was due to start her new job and the apartment was still not ready. She assured Rose that it would be fine if she were to go to the apartment while renovations were underway and that she could even help expedite the process. However, Rose wouldn't have it. Every week closer to her departure was a new reason there would be a delay. First, it was the finishing on the floors was the wrong color. Then, it was that plaster was used for the crown molding instead of wood. 
The most recent excuse was that the decorator had made a mistake in planning and was now unavailable. Miss feared that Rose just didn't want her to leave. You see, for however wealthy Rose was, she had very few friends, and aside from her husband, no loved ones. This pulled on Misty's heartstrings, and she figured she could find another job later. But her friend, who had done so much for her, needed her now. So she ended up staying in L.A. for another year. Now, two years later, Misty has made it back to Boston. While she's not working her dream job, she is independent and living comfortably until she receives a call from Rose. Sadly, Rose's beloved dog, Frenchie, has passed after becoming suddenly ill. At Rose's request, Misty abandons everything and is with her by the next afternoon. Six months later, Misty gets another call from Rose. This time, it's Rose's husband that had become sick and was in the hospital, comatose. Once again, Misty was by Rose's side the next day to console her dear friend. While Misty was with Rose, she never visited John at the hospital. Instead, she could only discuss the Thanksgiving holiday that was approaching and all of the planning, decorating, and cooking that was to be done. While this was odd, Misty understood that everyone grieved differently and assumed this was just how Rose coped. John would die the eve of Thanksgiving, prompting Misty to stay with Rose through the holidays. It was the start of a new year and Misty was ready to head back to Boston. However, Rose insisted that she stay there with her. With John now gone, Rose would be all alone in that gigantic house. Misty reminds Rose that her life and career is in Boston and she had to go back. The following day, Misty became extremely ill. She had major abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, as well as muscle cramps and diarrhea. Rose immediately springs into action and begins to nurse Misty back to health. However, the symptoms are so severe that her return home is postponed indefinitely. Several months go by and Misty's health begins to improve. She feels so indebted to Rose after all her generosity and hospitality that she decides to move back into the home with her officially. Misty is even able to find love again, but just as her new relationship becomes more serious, she gets sick again and is pretty much bedridden. Not willing to be a burden to anyone, Misty says goodbye to love. As she had been before, Rose was at the ready. This time, things don't feel right to Misty. Rose is completely devoted to her. She cooks all of her meals and occupies all of her time. She's even missing work now. Whenever she asks Rose if she could take her to the hospital, Rose reminds her that she is a doctor and they will not tell her anything that she hasn't already told her. She knows what is best for her and will continue to monitor her daily. Misty isn't satisfied with this response, especially since she's getting any better. So on one of the rare occasions that Rose does leave the house, Misty decides to go snooping. In the basement, she finds a container with German words on it. After a quick Google search, she discovers it's an old brand of rat poisoning containing arsenic. Though she suspected it, she didn't want to believe it. Rose had been poisoning her. Then she remembers Frenchie. 
And oh my god, poor John. Had she poisoned them too? Another year comes and goes, and Misty grows weaker by the day. It's time to prepare for their annual Thanksgiving party. Misty tells Rose that she was able to get the envelopes that she likes, but she doesn't have the strength to do it the way she knows Rose would want it done. Rose fixes the pair some tea, but Misty, rightfully untrusting of Rose, never lets her out of sight as she prepares anything for her anymore. She places a few spoonsfuls of sugar into her tea, and she watches as Rose licks and sails each envelope, unaware that she has laced them all with an extremely high dosage of that same poison she found in the basement. Rose becomes extremely ill, and within hours, she is dead. Unfortunately for Misty, Rose had found another way to feed her the poison. She put it in the sugar, and within hours of Rose's death, Misty was dead too. So which of the stories really happened? I'm sure you guessed it. Waste Not, Want Not is the true story. The names have been changed and the story dramatized, but the facts remain the same. In 1991, on Thanksgiving Day, Omaima Wilson murdered her husband, Bill Wilson, only weeks after saying I do. While the rape and abuse allegations are unknown whether or not to be true, this has always been the reason why Omaima says that she killed Bill. It was self-defense. Most believe that the abuse never really happened and that she intended to get rid of Bill almost immediately after marrying him. Why? For his money, of course. In fact, she was arrested for tying up a past partner and assaulting him with a gun while demanding money. It is also unknown if she truly ate any parts of Bill, since she denies it. However, a psychiatrist testified that Omaima said she had, that she, and I quote, did his ribs like in a restaurant, and that they were, in fact, sweet, delicious, and tender. Thank you so much for listening to my show. I really enjoyed doing this. And I want to continue to give you content. So please, please, please get out there and help me tell the world. I have some fun things planned for you, including special guests, merch, and a chance to get your stories featured on the show. But you know, I can't do it without you. So until next time, campers. on the Omaima Nelson story was obtained from Snapped Season 14, Episode 1, Lost Girls Blog, and All Things Interesting.